Good morning. I want to spend just a moment looking back um, all the way to last night. We had our second annual trunk or treat here at Netherwood Park Church of Christ, and it was a rousing success. We had 24 different trunks that were decorated with people in costume handing out candy, and we had a couple of hundred guests from our community around us that came to be a part of that, a lot of families with young children, so it was just a a wonderful night. So I want to thank all of you for your prayers and your participation, making that happen. Um, It's a good thing that we're doing there. I also want to look forward a little bit to next Sunday. Next Sunday is our Fall Pack the Pulpit Sunday. Um, If you're not familiar with that, that's a Sunday when we bring lots and lots of food. We try to fill up the pulpit here with the food that we bring so we can replenish our pantry, so we can continue to serve people in our community who um, don't have the resources that we have, who need food, um, not just during this time of year, but during other times of year. Uh, But we also do food boxes. Our youth group takes food boxes out to families who have particularly challenging times during the holiday seasons to help them out with that as well. So people will be handing out bags. If you don't already have your bag, it will look very much like this. Um, Take a bag or two or a dozen or however many you might fill up. On it, it will tell you what particular food item you should bring according to your last name. Bring that next Sunday. Um, Next Sunday, we'll be having a combined worship service. So the early worship service will not meet. We'll have Bible class and then this service at the regular time. We'll fill the pulpit up with all the stuff that you bring if you'll just leave it at the back. And then after that, what we'll do is we'll go over to the gym and we'll have a potluck together. So also check your bulletin and find out what food you need to bring so that we'll actually have something to eat when we go over there to have our potluck meal. So be in prayer about that. also plan on being here and being a part of that next week, if you will. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for this body of believers that meets in this place. We thank you for the love that we have for each other, the love that we have for your word, but most of all, the love that we have for you and your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, today we're going to have a a difficult family conversation, um, an emotional family conversation. And Father, I just pray that You will help me to speak your truth today, but Father, also help me to speak with your love and with your compassion. And Father, I pray this through the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, we are in the sixth week of a sermon series that we are calling On Target, and we've been having challenging but much needed family conversations about sexual relationships in doing it God's way. As we've been having these family conversations, we've been building our discussions around some foundational truths. Those foundational truths have been guiding and informing our approach to understanding God's will for all of our relationships. So our beginning point for every one of our conversations has been our affirmation that there is a target. As children of God, as followers of Jesus Christ, we believe that God has revealed His will for his people through scripture and through the life of his son, Jesus Christ. So as we've been approaching these conversations, we've been evaluating what's right and evaluating what's wrong biblically. We've been doing it from God's revelation. We haven't been doing it by our emotion, not by prevailing psychological theory, and not by what's going on in political discourse but we've been doing it biblically. 
So our first foundation is the fact that there is a target. And that target can be found in God's word. And it can be found in the life and teaching of Jesus Christ. And the other foundation on which we've been building is all about identity. Throughout our conversations, we've been affirming that we are much more than our desires. We are much more than our appetites. And we've been affirming that we find our true identity, that we find our full identity only in Jesus Christ. Jesus is what we need, and he is all we need. Jesus is the target. And so with those foundational truths in place, we're going to have another family conversation this morning. And this family conversation is about same-sex attraction, and it's about homosexual behavior. And I know that probably almost all of us are at least a little bit on edge about having this particular conversation. I know that some of us are nervous, and some of us are anxious, and some of us are uncomfortable, and that's just describing me. And there are probably a lot of other emotions out there. And I want you to know it's okay to have those emotions, to be feeling those kind of things. See, I'm not going to stand in front of you and pretend like this conversation is an easy conversation for us to have within our family. It isn't an easy conversation. It's an emotional conversation. It's in many ways a political conversation. It's a personal topic It's a topic that's raw and it's fresh. I think it's particularly raw and fresh because almost all of us have recently been forced to confront our feelings and beliefs on this topic in ways that we just haven't had to do before. So you might ask, if it brings up all those kinds of emotions and all those kinds of feelings, why even have this conversation? You might ask, why even talk about same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior? I think there are numerous reasons, but I want to mention just three reasons why I think that we should be having this conversation. The first reason is because we haven't had these conversations in the past. And because we haven't had these conversations in the past, when recent events pushed same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior front and center in our culture, we as Christians and we as a church weren't prepared to respond to that. We weren't prepared to respond confidently, and we weren't prepared to respond compassionately. So we either didn't respond at all, or we often responded in ways that seemed very confident but had very little compassion, or we responded with compassion but with very little confidence. So we need to have these conversations so we, as followers of Jesus Christ, can respond both confidently and compassionately. We also need to have this conversation because we can no longer pretend that we are somehow insulated from these issues. We're not. We can no longer pretend that the struggles with same-sex attraction and with homosexual behavior don't affect our family and don't affect our families. They do. These aren't just out there issues. These are out there and in here issues. They're family issues. And we also need to be having these conversations for the same reason we need to be having conversation about all sexual relationships. And that's because we're all part of the body of Christ. We belong to each other. We are a part of each other. 
And what I do affects you, and what you do affects me, and what we do affects the entire body of Christ, the whole church. See, we need to be having these conversations because what I do with my body isn't none of your business. And what you do with your body isn't none of my business. What we do with our bodies is family business. So that's why we need to have this family talk. The next question that you may have is, okay, if we're going to have this talk, how are we going to have this family talk? What's this conversation going to be like? You may be saying, how nervous should I be? And I want you to know, to the very best of my limited abilities, we will approach this subject biblically. Because that's how we want to evaluate anything. That's how we evaluate what's on target and what's off target. And I also want you to know that to the very best of my abilities, I will approach this subject respectfully. And part of how I will show respect and how we should show respect is by the language that I use, the language that we should use. So as we talk today, you will hear me use the word homosexual. But I won't use it as a noun. I'll use it as an adjective. I won't label label any person as a homosexual or any group of people as homosexuals. Just as I won't label any person as a heterosexual or any group of people as heterosexuals. I will refer to homosexual and heterosexual behaviors. And the reason that I'll do that is because language really matters. And it isn't healthy and it isn't constructive to label anyone based on their desires. Whether those desires are sexual or otherwise. Healthy or otherwise. And the reason that's not healthy and the reason that that's not constructive is because we are all much more than our desires. We are certainly much more than our sexual desires. So I want our conversation to be respectful. But I also want it to be humble. And I think our conversation can be humble if we just will deal in reality. Because humility is a result of reality. See, we enter this conversation knowing that we, that all of us, have unhealthy and unholy desires and behaviors in our own lives. And we should be humbled by that knowledge. We should be humbled by that knowledge, but we should be brought to our knees with the knowledge that God loves every one of us despite our unhealthy and unholy desires and behaviors. It should bring us to our knees. And we should stay on our knees with the knowledge that Jesus Christ died because of our unhealthy and unholy desires and behaviors. So I'm going to do everything within my power. We're going to do everything within our power to have a biblical, a respectful, and a humble conversation about same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior. And as we continue this conversation in our small groups and in our families and in our homes, we want our conversations to continue to be biblical and respectful and humble. So what I'm going to try to do over the next 20 minutes is try to answer some questions that we might have about same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior. And I'll try to answer them biblically and respectfully and humbly. 
These are by no means the only questions that might arise, and we certainly don't have time to exhaust the answers to these questions, but maybe, maybe this can be the beginning of equipping us to be able to respond confidently and compassionately about same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior. We'll start by answering some relatively short answers, well, by giving some relatively short answers to some very common questions, maybe the two most common questions related to this topic. The first question goes something like this. Is same-sex attraction a sin? And I want to reassure you that feeling attraction for someone of your same gender is not a sin. In fact, we need to emphasize that temptation of any kind is never a sin. It's the acting on unhealthy and unholy desires that is sinful. Sin is in the doing. It's not in the wanting. Adam and Eve didn't sin because they wanted the fruit that Satan offered. They sinned because they ate the fruit that he offered. Jesus wasn't free from sin because he didn't want the fruit that Satan offered him. He was without sin because he didn't eat the fruit that Satan offered him. So we need to understand that same-sex attraction is not a sin. The next question is a question that's probably led to more debate on this topic than any other question. And that's, are people born with same-sex attraction? Or is it something that develops as a result of their environment? Or is it because of a choice that they've made? And this is a question that I can only answer based on my experiences. So you need to understand this is my opinion based on my experience. I don't have chapter and verse in the Bible to back it up. It's my opinion from experiences. I'll kind of work backwards from those questions that were raised. I want you to know I have never known, I've never counseled, I've never worked with anyone who I believe chose to be attracted physically to the same sex. Never, not once. In fact, most of the people, most of my friends that I have counseled with, worked with, um, and, and spent time with, they do almost anything not to experience same-sex attraction and to have experienced the difficulties that they have lived out as a result of their attraction. Now, make sure you understand what I'm saying I don't believe any one of those people chose that attraction. But some of them chose to act on that attraction, and some of them chose not to act. Next, in my experience, I have known, I have worked with, I have counseled numerous people who had events in their lives occur that undoubtedly contributed to their same-sex attraction. I've also known and worked and counseled with people who had misguided adults or peers who steered them towards same-sex attraction at particularly vulnerable and impressionable stages of their life. And finally, I have known and counseled and worked with people who can't remember a time when they weren't attracted to people of the same gender. And that's why I believe that same-sex attraction is a result of some complex mixture of nature and nurture that no one truly understands. And I also want you to know, I honestly don't find the debate 
about how same-sex attraction and how other unhealthy attractions develop to be very helpful at all. You know, how we came to be tempted to lie, how we came to be tempted to steal, how we came to be tempted to gossip and cheat and abuse alcohol and other drugs, how we came to be tempted to cheat on our husbands and wives, and how we've become tempted to engage in homosexual behavior. I don't find it all that helpful to have a debate about how we came to desire the forbidden fruit. That doesn't really interest me. What interests me is what we're going to do about those desires. What interests me is whether or not we are going to allow ourselves and allow others to be identified by those desires. Liar, thief, gossip, cheat, drunk, addict, adulterer, fornicator, homosexual, fallen, lost. Are we going to allow those to be our identity, or are we going to find our identity in Jesus Christ as redeemed, restored, forgiven, Christian? And are we going to identify others by their desires, or are we going to point them to Jesus to find their identity in the Redeemer, the Restorer, the Forgiver, the Savior? See, those are the questions that should interest us. And if we're going to point people to Jesus, we need to have biblical, respectful, and humble answers to some other questions that will arise. So here are some longer answers to some other common questions that will arise. The next question that often arises is actually about the Bible. And it goes something like this. It says, it seems like Christians are making a big deal about homosexual behavior. But does the Bible really have very much to say about homosexual behavior? And the honest answer to that question is that the Bible has a lot to say about sexual behavior. And it has a lot to say about sexual immorality. And it has a little to say about homosexual behavior and homosexual immorality. There are really only a few verses that explicitly talk about homosexual behavior in the Bible. There are just a few, about seven. And I would encourage you to familiarize yourself with all of those verses. Because of time constraints, we certainly won't read them all. We'll just read a couple of representative passages. But by all means, write them down. Familiarize yourself with all of them. The first one that we will look at is in the book of Leviticus. If you're not familiar with the book of Leviticus, it's a book that articulates in great detail the law to the Israelites that was passed down to them. And it does so in often excruciating and often gory detail. And Leviticus chapter 18 is a chapter that's really not for the faint of heart. It presents a whole list of unlawful sexual relations. And among them, in verse 22, is this. It says, do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. A little later on in Leviticus chapter 20, it outlines the punishments for many of the sexual sins that were presented in chapter 18. And for the sin of lying with another man as one lies with a woman, the punishment is they must be put to death. Their blood will be on their own heads. So it's clear that under the old law, God left no doubt that homosexual behavior was prohibited. 
It was unlawful, and there was very serious punishment prescribed for it. But the question might arise, that's under the old law. How about after Christ? How about in the new law? What does the Bible have to say? Once more, we need to know that the New Testament has a lot to say about sexual immorality and a little to say about homosexual immorality. We'll focus on just one passage, and that's in Romans chapter 1. And Paul here talks about all the different ways that the Israelites rebelled against God. And then in verse 26, he writes this. He said, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. And in the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. And men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. So here in this passage, and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul makes sure that his readers understand an important truth. And that's that when it comes to sexual immorality, including homosexual immorality, God's will for his people hasn't changed. What was off target then is off target now. What was on target then is on target now. But there are other questions. And because the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about homosexual behavior, a frequent question that we might hear goes something like this. Yeah, but aren't you going too far? Aren't you making too big of a deal out of just a few verses that we find in the Bible? And in humility, we have to understand that we have to be very careful, don't we? We don't want to speak where the Bible really doesn't speak. But that isn't the case here. It isn't the case here because even though homosexual behavior isn't spoken of often, it's always spoken of in prohibitive and restrictive language. In the Bible, it's always wrong. It's always off target. It's always sinful. There isn't a positive biblical example. There aren't any heroes in the Bible engaging in homosexual behavior. There isn't any shift in attitude from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But the question might arise, well, that's the old law speaking and that's Paul speaking. And we all know that Paul is a Jewish man, very deeply steeped and engaged in the Jewish culture and the Jewish law. That's what they say. But what about Jesus? See, Jesus never said anything about homosexual behavior. And aren't we supposed to be following Jesus and not the Old Testament and not Paul? And that's true. Jesus did have a lot to say about a lot of sinful things, and there's no record that he ever said anything about homosexual behavior. But we need to remember this. See, Jesus spent his life speaking to Jewish audiences, to audiences that needed no reminder that homosexual behavior was prohibited in their culture. That prohibition was part of their culture. And what Jesus did was give them needed reminders and needed affirmations that the traditional Jewish standards of sexual behavior were still God-approved, were still God-glorifying. Last week, if you're here, you'll remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19. 
He said, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. And therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. See, what Jesus does, Jesus who had no qualms at all about standing counter to the prevailing culture, he was more than willing to do that. But in this case, instead of standing counter to the prevailing culture, Jesus affirmed the correctness of Jewish culture. One woman, one man, united as one for life. But other questions will arise. And a common question is this. If God didn't intend for people to act on their desires, why do some of us have those desires And I think the biblical, respectful, and humble answer to that question begins by all of us acknowledging that we all have desires for things that aren't the desire of the Lord. All of us. We were all born into a sinful world. We all live in a fallen world. A world where things, especially the desires of our hearts, where things aren't the way that God intended And they're not the way that God desired. The days are evil. And so often are the desires of our hearts. But our desires were never intended to be the source for determining God's will in our lives. See, our desires don't have to determine our identity. Our temptations don't have to determine our destiny. I like what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He said, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. You see, we all have to acknowledge that we're on equal ground when we are at the foot of the cross. See, at the cross... We all have to decide if we're going to be identified by our desires, identified by our appetites. We're going to be identified as liar, thief, gossip, cheat, drunk, addict, adulterer, fornicator, homosexual, fallen, sinner. Or at the foot of the cross, are we going to find our identity in Jesus Christ? Redeemed, restored, forgiven, Christian. We also have to decide if we're going to identify others by their desires or are we going to point them to Jesus? Are we going to invite them to the foot of the cross to meet their true identity, their full identity? Are we going to invite them to the foot of the cross to change their destiny? See, at the foot of the cross is where we all meet our Redeemer, our Restorer, our Forgiver, our Savior. And it's at the foot of the cross that we recognize that we're all truly on level ground. Those with opposite sex attraction and those with same sex attraction. Those of us with any kind of sexual attraction. Because we're all dependent on the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. But we also have to remember that Jesus' grace and mercy doesn't leave us free to simply follow our hearts 
wherever our desires might take us. N.T. Wright put it this way. He said, all of us, some of the time, and some of us, most of the time, have deep, heartfelt longings for kinds of sexual intimacy or gratification which do not reflect God's best intentions for his people. But sexual restraint is mandatory for all. It's difficult for most, and it's extremely challenging for some. And God is gracious, and God is merciful, but this never means so his creational standards don't really matter after all. They do matter. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. He said, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Paul's answer is by no means. He says, we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And then in verse 6 he says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, no longer slaves to our desires. Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. See, the cross offers a new identity. Identity is redeemed. Identity is restored. Identity is forgiven. The cross offers a transformed identity. No longer identified by our desire, no longer slaves to our desires, but identified as slaves to Jesus Christ. Over the next two weeks, we're going to spend some time talking about how we respond to sin. We're going to talk about how we respond to sin in our own lives, especially sexual sin in our own lives. And then we'll talk about how we should respond to sexual sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters, sexual sin in the life of the church. And then we'll talk about how we should respond to sexual sin in the lives of those who don't really even know Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is I want to end today by kind of looking ahead to the next two weeks. I want to leave you with five statements that we, as the redeemed, as the restored, that we, as the forgiven, five statements that we can know, five statements that we must know with confidence as we confront sexual sin in our lives, in the life of the church, and in the lives of those who don't know Jesus Christ. So the first statement that I want to leave you with as we look forward to the next two weeks is this. Same-sex attraction doesn't determine one's salvation. And it doesn't determine one's salvation any more than heterosexual attraction does. It doesn't determine our salvation because if we are going to have salvation, we all must submit all we are to Jesus Christ. Second statement. We must not lose confidence in the gospel. The gospel is good news, and it's good news for everyone. And it's good news because what we give up for Jesus doesn't even begin to compare to what he gives back to us. The gospel is good news for everyone. The third statement I want to leave you with is this. Love and kindness are non-negotiable. 
In fact, the Bible teaches us that love and kindness leads to repentance. Love and kindness are non-negotiable. Fourth statement I want to leave you with. Love and kindness does not equal silence. We need to know that you can love someone and still identify the sin in their lives. In fact, if you really love someone, you will identify the sin in their lives. But if you really love someone, you will allow them to identify the sin in your life as well. Love and kindness does not equal silence. And the final statement I want to leave you with as we look forward to the next two weeks is this. Transformation is possible. It's only possible through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Same-sex attraction does not determine one's salvation any more than heterosexual attraction does. We must not lose confidence in the gospel. Love and kindness are non-negotiable. Love and kindness does not equal silence, and transformation is possible through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And I hope that you will join me over the next two weeks. Join us as we spend some time removing some planks from our eyes. As we spend some time removing some sawdust from our brothers' and sisters' eyes. And as we talk about confidently pointing those who don't know Jesus Christ to the good news of the cross. If you're here today and you've lost your way, if you've lost your identity in Jesus Christ, if you're here today and you aren't what you used to be in Jesus Christ, instead you've become what you used to be in the world, if you're not what Christ's blood made you to be, I want you to know that that can be recaptured, that can be restored. Your true identity as a child of God can be yours again. And all you have to do is come to the cross and ask Jesus for his forgiveness and turn away from your sin and he will restore you as a true child. And if that's what your need is today, we want to encourage you to let that be known. We're going to sing a song. You can walk to the front and and let us know that you've lost your way and you want to find it again. If you'd rather, you can go to room 104. A couple of our elders or an elder and his wife will be in that room. They would like nothing more than to talk to you about finding your way through Jesus Christ. Whatever your needs are, won't you let us know while we stand and while we sing this song.